Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a bodybuilder of about 30 years. Hey, Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm a former editor, editor at Muscle Mike International, former competitive bodybuilder, and strength training enthusiast. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I run Strength Guild, LiveForHope.org, and I'm back on the seminar circuit. If you, anybody's interested, I've got one date that's getting ready to be. Laid in stone up in Canada, and uh, probably going to do two more this year. So cool. If it has an interest, uh, drop me a line. All right. And Phil, introduce our guest, man. Oh, and yeah, Ken, Ken's with us. Sorry about that. Ken O'Neill is joining us again. We said he would uh, today, a, a couple weeks ago, and um, we're going to kind of pick up right where we left off, and uh, there was just too much for everybody to say. So we had to have Ken on again, and probably ended up doing it again. So, Ken, thank you. You're welcome. It's fun. Yep, I think it, it was such an easy uh, conversation to fall into that it's it's easy just to, <laughs> you yeah. know, just start rolling with things and say, hey, wait, let's remember, you know, the, the fourth chair is occupied ah. today. <laughs> okay, um, I wanted to start with a quick rant, you guys. I, um, twice this week, I have bumped into something, Phil, that you've talked about before. And I admit it, you know, but I'm not, it doesn't mean that science isn't important, but it's obvious science, right? I've heard three or four examples of this, actually. I'm just going to share two. Strength and muscle sport news. The big one was the, um, the, um, article that came out February 25th, I believe. It was a, um, New England Journal of Medicine. It was a, um, from a group of researchers in Spain and, <laughs> Mostly the problem is the way that these journalists get a hold of this. You know, they tweak the information to tr- try to make it sound good. I don't know what they're doing with it. They're, they don't understand it. There's, I'm sure there are messages in here. That there's something new, you know, because hypotheses in research are usually very specific. But by the time it got filtered through the media, the message was the Mediterranean diet is good. <laughs> Re- really? You know, God help us all. You know, I, I mean, I'm sorry, but... Thanks for nothing, right? I mean, the study did talk about an inverse association between adhering to a Mediterranean diet, you know, and cardiovascular risk, and they looked at a lot of people. I did not look at the whole study, but like I said, I'm sure there's nuggets in there about how oils might be a good thing, like olive oil, as a replacement to refined carbs. Or, But that all got kind of washed out, and, you know, they boil it down to a 20-second uh, blurb, and usually they make the conclusions for you. They never talk about the methods, you know, or any of the interesting parts. They just create their own little thing for you that the Mediterranean diet is good. So thanks for nothing, uh, science journalists. And in the second one, uh, I was just listening to the March 1st Science Friday podcast. And listeners, if you're interested in uh, it's sort of random bits of science from around the world, this is a great podcast. It's part of NPR. But they had um, two professors on there. One was a a nutrition professor from Minnesota, and another one was, uh, I, I don't remember where he was from, but he was another professor, and he was more of a physiology-focused professor. And um, they were sort of debating uh, what was good or not so impressive about whole grains. And the woman from Minnesota, she was sort of going on about, you know, whole grains in any form are good. And this guy's like, no, not really, you know, because if they're highly processed, like he was using the difference of steel cut oats versus instant oatmeal, you know, and how their glycemic indices are radically different and the insulin response is different. You know, you get different effects for the next several hours. And, um, you know, and her responses, I just thought were, they were so um, party line, like when it comes to, you know, the government's recommendations, because she, I think she's on a committee regarding this. But so he would say something like, well, regardless of how much whole grain is in it, you know, it really, you really should be looking for something that literally looks like it's granular. Like he was talking about how al dente pasta, you know, slightly undercooked pasta or whole grain, uh, not just whole grain, but literally um, 
steel-cut kinds of oats. When you can see the texture, that's better. And she's like, well, that's a perfect world. You know, um, really, any whole grain is better. People need to get there so many grams of whole grains, three servings of whole grains. And he's like, really? You know, like, even that little dab of powdered whole grain that's in Lucky Charms? You know, because the the insulin response is radically different. And so he's trying to argue for more of a glycemic load or glycemic index point of view or insulin index point of view. And then she sort of, you know, shockingly says, well, then how are we going to get to our 60 or 65 percent of calories target for for carbohydrates? And I think this guy's like, well, we're, we're not, you know, you you can eat more, you know, like, again, with the Mediterranean stuff, but you can focus on nuts, seeds, uh, oils, um, you know, now she did have a good point about carbohydrates are cheap. Now that's the one point I can really sink my teeth into that she's talking about. You know, when you talk about, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people, how do you feed them? Generally, whether it's wherever you are around the world, there's going to be some type of grain that makes that financially sustainable. You know, as opposed to everybody looking for broccoli and chicken breasts. You know, or like a one-pound bag of Oreo cookies. <laughs> so. <laughs> So anyway, um, you know, this whole thing, like, they're talking about how do you figure out you go into the supermarket and, you know, one thing's whole grain and one thing's stone ground and, and you know, and what's this fiber stuff? And I'm like, are people really that ignorant? Because that's my my message this week is, my question rather is, are, are Americans really that ignorant? And I mean, a lot of them are. And there's a difference between ignorance and stupidity. You know what I'm talking about, this lack of knowledge. And I think we take for granted as uh, strength athletes of whatever kind that things like old-fashioned oatmeal or steel-cut oats are probably better than Lucky Charms with some oat powder in it, you know, uh, or that healthy oils might be a good idea instead of trying to pump 65% of all our calories as carbs uh, every day. So I think we really take for granted how much more we know than the average person. But again... Uh, Again, with the gripe, though, that these uh, science journalists, they just take this stuff. And, I mean, I don't know. The big news, I guess, is, is what was so disappointing, which was the Mediterranean diet is good and whole grains, who cares, you know, if they're obviously um, in a tiny amount in powdered form. So what, guys? I mean, you know, this is just not news. And, again, maybe I don't want to sound elitist um, but because, again, we may, maybe we take this stuff for granted. But, oh, man. So... Not a stellar week, in my opinion, for learning anything new from from the you know nutrition science news. Yeah, um, I got some news. I, I just want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, uh, Robin Sorgren or Sorin. I'm not sure how to say his name. Um, anyways, he uh, took the super heavyweight title at the, uh, the Arnold Boom yesterday. Yesterday, squatted uh, 748, benched 445 and a half, and uh, deadlifted 710. And none of it looked too damn hard. Um, so good job. Just want to say congratulations. Keep it up. Indeed. Nice work. Big numbers. Yeah. Yeah, big number, And that's no small feat. I mean, that's a seems like a serious event, too. So. Yeah. You know, it was an IPF event. So, um, yeah, good times. Very cool. Fortress, you had some um, listener mail. Is that right? Um, yeah, a couple questions. Um, actually, somebody yeah, on, a, on a more light note, we got uh, an email from uh, Will, one of our listeners, and he sent us to, uh, he gave me a link to uh, a site where you can get, we're always referencing some of the you know, different movies that we love and the quotes, you know, and certainly Conan factors into that a lot. Um, and he sent me to a link for thinkgeek.com and you can actually order a shirt there that has the quote from the famous quote from that we always refer to from Conan where it's uh, you know Conan what is best in life yes Mm -hmm. you know to crush your enemies see them driven before you and to hear the lamentation of their women anyway um, and there's a t-shirt you can buy there that's for like 12 bucks or something like that so I thought that was kind of humorous but I have seen that yes okay yeah (laughs) Um, but beyond that um yeah, I got, I got an, an email a week or two ago from a guy, uh, one of our listeners, David. Um, he was introduced to our show a little while ago from a powerlifting friend of his. So, thanks to all the people out there who you know can expand our listener base by uh, you know presenting and 
you know, informing other people who are interested in the same thing onto our show. So thank you for that, David. Um, but he was uh, he was talking about he had a debate with a friend. Um, he says he was finishing his degree in health and fitness, and they were talking debating about the use of supporting assistance aids such as belts for ninety percent lifting, wrist straps for continuing to work particular muscles for after the flexors have failed. Um, anyway, he, he was saying that this guy threw a lot of academic work by a certain doctor at the uh, University of Waterloo. Unfortunately, I just do not know enough to argue the science behind the use of belts or support equipment. The most recent article I was able to find, an article from the University of California from 2001, the use of belts in 90% squatting. Who's eating a chocolate bar? Not me. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Phil, get it under that control. That wasn't me this time. <laughs> I'm getting a piece of gum. Ah. Oh, okay. My hope, either via your radio show or send me by email, is to look where the science is at today for these things. Um, thanks for your help. Anyway, um, I don't know anything about science pertaining to these things. Lonnie, do you, as far as... Uh, uh, are, now, lifting belts? Was that on the list? Yeah, like, yeah, supportive assistance aids such as belts and wrist straps and things like this. Um, I will say that the uh, National Strength Conditioning Association, in their, their book, their essentials book that I actually teach out of... Um, does suggest that it creates, you know, intra-abdominal pressure that can help stabilize the spine, and it probably does, in fact, reduce injury risk. Um, again, that might might fall into the category of obvious science, but uh, it is sort of, you know, textbook science. Um, and for that matter, even the Valsalva maneuver, you know, when you close your glottis in your throat and you're kind of, you know, and you hold your breath while you lift... That apparently stabilizes and increases sort of um, intra-abdominal, intra-thoracic yeah. pressures. And it might be less obvious whether or not that's injury preventive, um, but certainly that much more pressure between the belt and the Valsalva maneuver, uh, probably good things for, you know, uh, creating lots of t- tension and tightness. And that's what you want, you know, when you've got 700 <clears throat> pounds on your backs. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the simplistic meathead view real quick. And, uh I, every really strong person I know wears a belt. <laughs> you know, I mean, okay. so I mean, that's if you want, you know, just a, an on the street case study. Um, not all the time, of course, we do belt free training, but um, usually for you know max lifts, there's there's very few people out there who who don't. Um, and I mean, if you want to take a little more, I guess, a academic view, um, it's you know the whole, the whole argument that. You know, you can flex a muscle harder when you have something to brace it against. Um, and that's all in learning how to use a belt. And it's not, it's, it's teaching people how to use it not as an aid, but as, not as a, a crutch, but an aid. And actually learning how to use it correctly. And a little looser and actually flexing against the belt. Yeah. Uh, instead of just crushing it on you to where, you know, it's, it's kind of a form to you. But, um. Well, you know, I'll, you always hear people talk about, you know, the, the lifting gear, lifting suits and so forth, yeah. and on bench shirts and how, you know, to maximize their benefit, you actually have to train with it and learn how to use it yeah, effectively. Yeah. Well, certainly the, the rules apply still for the, bat, the, the you know, weight belt, which is, you know, what you're kind of alluding to there, Phil. Um, yeah. You know, you can just put on a belt, you know, or you can put on a belt and kind of understand how to use it properly. And, and certainly we're talking about differences between, you know, those kind of like little uh, wussy bodybuilding belts that a lot of people wear and, you know, the, the more kind of powerlifting style belts. But, um you know, when you see guys walking around with those, the, you know, the former type all the time, and they wear the damn thing through, you know, every worker, with, they never take it off. You know, they cinch yeah. it up and just walk around with it. Um, yeah. You know, and I've never certainly agreed with that, and I, but I do agree with the fact that, you know, a belt is hugely advantageous to a serious strength athlete. Um, yeah. But I also think that um, there should be, you know, um, elements of your training you know, even the big lifts that don't utilize the oh, belt. I mean, you look at this. Everybody, everybody talks. You know, there's that class of people that say belts make you weak. Um, I would argue that I'm a good, you know, I'm a good example that it doesn't. Seeing as the fact that I don't wear a belt deadlifting. You know, I yeah. I, wear it, I wear it on all my heavy squats. Mm-hmm. It, it feels right. It, it you know, but my best deadlift with a belt is about. I think I had 650. My best deadlift with no belt is 780. 
<laughs> so you can't tell me I have a weak core if I'm able to pick up 780 from the floor. Where well, back to what Rob was saying, uh, I don't think necessarily that bodybuilding belts, I mean, you could call them wimpy, but that's what I use. I just use a leather belt. And yeah, but you know what? Your if I row is... or squat or yeah. do overhead presses, I'm glad I've got that thing cinched down. Yeah, no, I'm not talking about the belt. You, I, I know what the kind of belt you use. I'm talking about, well, it's hard to describe because we're only a radio show here, but um, anyway. Yeah, oh, so yeah, like the Velcro Vallejo belts or something. Yeah, though, those types of belts, yeah, where where it's almost like, you know, it's it's almost like just to warm the area more than actually provide any sort of support kind of a thing. And like I say, I you know, I just don't like the whole idea of these guys who come in there, you know, 140-pound guys, and they... You know, they're all decked out with their, you know, they got the gloves, they got everything, you know, <laughs> everything perfect walking out there. And, you know, that belt is cinched, you know, with an inch of their life and their waist is now, you know, it's not fashion. It's, it's not, they're not, their weight, waist is now not 23 inches, it's 17 inches because it's cinched so tight. And, you know, they're sitting on the, you know, the biceps preacher curl machine and everything with it. It's, it's just, you know, uh, not to mention most of the people I've heard talking about belts make you weak. You know, it's some guy in his max squats 225. You know, trying to tell me I don't, uh, you shouldn't wear a belt that'll make you weak. Well, I'm squatting six plus, so yeah. <laughs> you know, not to be elitist, but you know, when you're close to that, you get an opinion. I should look <laughs> into that, you guys. I don't think I have ever seen uh, a paper that says that compared guys who wear their belt around all day long, you know, in the gym, and those who didn't. And then looked at different indices of core strength. That would be an interesting study, though, because yeah, I've never seen anything like that. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually wear my powerlifting belt most frequently, and this this might sound weird to a lot of people on bench press. Yeah. And people always ask me that. They're like, well, you know, you squat all this weight, and you you wear your belt a lot for heavy squats, but you you know you're always wearing it when you're bench pressing. And the thing is. You know, of all the three power lifts, you know, that's the one that would probably be obviously least affected by the use of that. And, you know, um, I don't know. I just like the way it feels when I'm on the bench. I don't, I, I really, it doesn't give me jack crap, jack crap on the freaking bench, but I just like the way it feels to cinch it up, um, when I'm on there. But, so on that, on that note, it's psychological, of course, but. Yes. Uh, well, Rob, I do the same thing with, uh, like Under Armour kinds of stuff. I just like to have another layer under my yeah. sweatpants. Just compression. Like you've yeah. used the word pressurized before. Yeah. I like to feel pressurized. When there's oh. a lot of weight on you, you want to feel like a pressurized piston, not some flaccid, you know. Well, you know, and, 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 and you know, Lonnie, I have always worn something like bicycle pants or something under my sweatpants when I squat for exactly, exactly the same reason. And... You know, I was doing that from the time I was a teenager, and I certainly yeah. remember when I first met Tom Platts, and then you know him and I got speaking at length about all these these types of things that only interest guys like us. And I remember him saying that one of the things he always used to do is always wear tight sweats when he squats, for the same reason that you and I are talking about. He didn't yeah. like loose clothes like that, and you know, and he had all sorts of weird little tricks, like whether or not they work or not. But you know, he, it's so psychological. Like he would always say to me. You know, when you squat, make sure you wear socks that come up really high up on your lower leg because it makes it's it makes you feel like you're shorter. And ever since he told me that, I have been doing that as well. I've always made sure I've had like you know, really high socks. And I mean, again, whether it's real or imagined or you know whatever you want to say, Rob, you know, I didn't know that. I have noticed that you pull up your socks. When I, I squat, did not I know that. That's an interesting up. tip. And that's directly. From Mr. Tom Platts, and he oh. and, and that went along with like like we're talking about as far as he'd say, and he'd even say like I'd always make sure I wore red on squat day because red, you know, is a color that you know, um, you know, it, it promotes and again I don't know the the science behind this, but promotes kind of rage and excitement and all that kind of thing. So when he was looking in the mirror, he would see red and not some you know placid color like you know. Did I ever like, tell you guys this that when I used to do full contact uh, martial arts? Uh, they always said, you want the red or the blue, uh, you know, chest protector. And I always picked the blue so I could look at the other guy wearing red. And it was for that same kind of reason. Again, I don't right. know the science behind it either, but. Right. You know, you know. But even just things like looking in the mirror and making scowling faces. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, 
things you could read about, you know, how when you look at yourself scowling or the face of others, somebody scowling or with a mean look on their face or something, it kind of like you take on that kind of... Yes, and there is science there. Yeah. Okay, okay, there you go, so... You know, all I mean, these are all like you know, for, for for average people in the street, this might all sound so stupid and trivial and dumb, but you know, I think probably all of us or anybody who's you know to any degree has seriously gotten into this type of thing realizes that all these little things add up to sometimes substantial amounts, right? So, and that's why it's important not to just roll up to the gym and be like, oh, I forgot my gym clothes, I forgot that, I didn't eat when I wanted to, I didn't do this, I didn't have two seconds of myself to think before, after I left work, I didn't have time to, like, think about what you're doing, you know, and obviously yeah. the more t the more you do it, and the more, you know, you get into a kind of a more veteran or advanced level of this, you, you start accumulating all these little things that may or may not work for you, you might have your own things, and certainly, yeah. again, email us if you have you know, any little things like that might pertain to this that you, you yourselves do out there, our listeners. But, you know, you start accumulating over years all of these little things that you do. I mean, and a lot of it, it is ritual. You know, like how you do up your shirt or, how you know, what rack in the gym you might use or, um, you know. How like, you wear your hat. You know? Yeah, and how much, you know, like I go to the bathroom between my third and fourth warm-up set. You know, I mean, and again, all this stuff might seem weird, but, you know, I mean, it all lends itself towards, I think, ultimately success because I think if you look at anybody who's very very successful in athletics um, they all have their little rituals they all have their little accumulated kind of things that they do and uh, you know it all kind of let, let puts yourself into into the headspace and into into the moment in a very intense way you know because it's not just flippant you're not just it's like I always say right exercises work out you know athletes train you know like just to go in the gym and just kind of you know, be talking on the phone between your sets and all this stuff. But, you know, it's the person that goes in and it's actually like, you know, this this is what I'm doing. This is how, you know, this is that how I structure it. This is how I like things to be done. Um, you know, and this is, it all lends itself towards me, you know, maximizing what I'm doing here today. I mean, all those so, things are engaging instead of disengaging, like you said, with a phone or something. Well, exactly, exactly. And it's like, it's almost like military, you know, military precision where you go in and this is how it's going to be today and this is how I want it to be. And I'm just... You know, it's it's the seriousness of it, and and you know what? I mean, some people might look at that as being kind of a a stressor, you know, an un, a non unneeded stressor on on. But you know, in my eyes, it kind of makes it fun because it's the whole process of it, you know. And and Lonnie and Phil, you both you know that I've talked to this about this at length on past shows. Sometimes you know, my favorite time is the hour or two before I train. You know, it's, it's the whole lead up to it. It's that whole kind of, you know what I mean, where you're kind of, it's almost like you got, and I've used this analogy where you're in the car, high performance car, and you got your brake, the brake on, and you're hitting the accelerator, and you're ramping it up and ramping it up, and then when it's time to go, you, you, you know, you'll have to brake and you squeal out, right? So, um, there you go. And, and hey, I'll tell you what, um, speaking of exploring every angle like that, that's one of the things that I think when we come back from the break, uh, we're going to ask Ken about, because I know the Soviets were exploring all kinds of things. How about that for a segue? There you uh, go. <laughs> so we're going to go to break just real quick, everyone, and when we come back, we're going to get some juicy information. So just a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Hello, Iron Radio listeners. This is Dr. Lowry. I just want to offer an update on the protein and resistance exercise book that you hear about in ads at the end of the show. The publisher and I realize that the textbooks have 
become expensive. This one's $99. So individual electronic chapters have been made available for $20 U.S. dollars. As with Iron Radio, my primary drive here is to get valid, reliable information into the hands of fellow lifters. So if you simply Google CRC Press Protein, you'll find the page where the book is sold. By clicking on ebook purchase at the right, you'll be taken to a page with free introductory parts of the book, as well as each chapter in electronic PDF format. There's also links uh, to other sources in this version. So whether you're interested in an academic heavy hitter like Dr. Peter Lemon sharing protein's history and strength training, or you're a biochem nerd like me and you want to just look at chapter two on protein synthesis and breakdown, or if you want to cut to the chase and get to a chapter on using protein weight control or case studies, you can now do so for just 20 bucks. So please check out CRC Press Protein and see which chapter topic may interest you. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, and we're back. Again, like Lonnie said, we have Ken on, and we're going to explore some of the... uh, Go further in depth with what we kind of ended with last show, Um, and we never got to, to... talk about though with Ken in depth about you know what all the Soviets were exploring not just um, much of the stuff we've heard about on on the physical side but everything else so uh, Ken take it away all right I couldn't help but be struck with uh, what Rob was talking about uh, in the sense that our athletes are still left to their own devices when it comes to any sort of formidable system of uh, training the mind we don't have a system of, uh, of what you might call mental training. What the Soviets were interested in, and it all began when they started their space program in the 50s. They, they were the first to put a, a satellite in space, uh, Sputnik. And their ambitions were to put people into space, not just to go to the moon, but to visit planets and so on. And partly in recognition that everything changes when you're in zero gravity and partly in recognition that what are you going to do on a long, long voyage Uh, psychologically, what's it going to do to your physiology, they became interested in coming to grips with what was known anywhere in the world about dormant human capacities and functions, things that people did in, in various cultures now, they were lucky in engaging in this program because as Marxists they didn't have the reign of religious taboos on investigating certain phenomena Uh, what happened in our culture is that when science emerged uh, pretty much in the medicine court in the Latin Renaissance um, science was branded heresy and the deal that was finally struck in the 17th century was that religious authority said, okay, science, go for it. You can measure external, observable phenomena. The mind is the seat of the soul, and that belongs to religion. So it was not until 1878 when William James established a psychological laboratory at Harvard and wound the same in Germany a year later that psychology was allowed to even begin to study the mind in the West. Well, the Soviets didn't have those inherited heresies in their science. So they went off and studied yoga. They went off and studied Zen. What do shamans do? What do people do in a variety of cultures? So that they could catalog um, certain expressions in given cultures of what people can do that most of us don't know a thing about. And they were doing this in a context of wanting to develop methods of uh, voluntary control of the so-called autonomic nervous system, which means that we take things like, for example, blood pressure as something that's out of our control. If you go to your doctor and he sees your blood pressure is high, what's he want to do? 
he wants to write you a prescription for beta blockers. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got a vast amount of literature going back to Esdale's work in India in the 1840s. 1840s, Esdale did over a thousand surgeries using only hypnosis for anesthetic. Well, we wouldn't want to do that in our culture because we wouldn't need high-profile drugs and high-profile anesthesiologists. They'd pitch a fit. Stop it. But nevertheless, the Soviets were able to inherit this vast uh, amount of data about what people could do and began looking at it in terms of how can we apply this for people to develop self-control, voluntary control, or master of their, mastery of their own body-mind in space. Well, they never got into space like that. But what they did do is apply it in two other dimensions. They applied it in uh, athletic training, and they applied it to some extent in medical clinics. So back in the 60s and especially in the 70s, we in our culture used to hear all the time the Soviets were winning 95 Olympic gold medals because they had superior drugs. What we didn't know was that they had a way of addressing mind. And by mind, I don't mean just thinking. By mind, I would include emotions. We all know in those moments of truth when we're going for a personal record or some feat, emotions can pop in there and ruin our parade immediately. We not might even be might not even be explicitly consciously aware of a little intruding voice or a little intruding feeling. Uh, some of us don't have that much sensory acuity, but we get derailed. And the Soviets wanted to develop a way of uh, focusing activity, and uh, they did that. We've had a few people in our culture venture in there, probably the greatest living expert right now on what they were doing who went equipped with a PhD in psychology is my friend friend Fred Hatfield Fred has not begun to publish in the area Uh, his his knowledge base is rather exceptional Um, Charles Garfield did some work back in the 70s at a sports conference in Milan he uh, I think Garfield's about 200 pounds probably about 5'9 his best ever bench press was 365 he went to Milan in a condition where 280 would have been a struggle. He got to Milan. He had six hours of coaching from some Soviet coaches who worked with his conscious and unconscious mind. They put him on a bench and said, take the weight and do it, and he rammed 365 up. Uh, they thought he was probably capable of doing as much as four and a quarter, but they had no instruments for accessing um ligament strength so they didn't run the risk so we have very very limited accounts Mel Siff uh, co-authored the um, super training his co-author was the probably one of the greatest Soviet sports psychologists and unfortunately not much of that material made it into the book I began researching this uh, topic after we talked last time convinced that the movement would have continued forward. And unfortunately, it hasn't. Not much of anything has been published since 1986. And probably the most compelling article, as far as it goes, was one by Stanley Krippner comparing the Soviet Hidden Human Reserves, that's the name of the program, with the American Human Potential Movement settled at, centered sort of at Esalen in, in California. These people were doing a lot of very common work in exploring frontiers of human consciousness. What are the dormant functions, dormant capacities that are born into us, that are part of our evolutionary heritage that we don't use and develop? Or if we do use them and develop, quite frequently it's by accident. We don't know they're there, and in the in the particularly in sport where you're doing a repetitious movement hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, you start to flow into a zone. You don't have to think about it, and it's generally in those moments where one makes passage into a realm of uh, incredible ability, but doesn't know how to get back to it. So the interesting thing to me, and what I've pursued. I didn't know that the field hadn't developed much. 
because I was developing myself in my own training. Part of my background uh, is in Japan. I went there to study something called Buddhism. I'm not a person that's interested in religion. I went there to understand the psychology and tools and practices that would give me access to these dormant capacities. And what I have found in the way is that smart training is training <coughs> which kind of periodizes both physical and psychological training so that you're integrating development of your emotional and mental capacities with your physical capacities. The outcome of that is there's, there's less randomness to peak performance. You settle into a zone of knowing how to perform. You settle into a zone of eliminating emotional, in particular, uh, emotionally stressful incidents that go on. Is this making sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, in totally. fact, I was going to interject that um, there's an old phrase I've heard from coaches that, you know, when under stress, we revert to our training. You know, almost this kind of, you know, um, no mind concept, I guess. Um, and I think that's one of the things a lot of people that I've spoken to, my wife actually works in, as a cognitive behavioral therapist, and I see so many similarities between what I've learned about Buddhism and modern CBT. You know, as if modern CBT is new. I, I think this stuff's been around for 2,500 years, to be honest. A lot well, of it. It's well, you know. India. It's called Abhidharma, and it's a whole mapping of adverse emotional states that have to be dealt with along the way. They yes. nailed it. Up to 100 adverse emotions. Well, and Ken, you know better than I that, you know, being able to clear your mind and, you know, have a combination of relaxation and concentration, or even just extreme concentration, um, that's huge, and it requires practice. You know, it's one thing to know about it. It's another thing to, you know, try to meditate actively or progressively in some way toward becoming, you know, exercising your concentration muscle, if you will. You know, and I think that's one of the things a lot of uh, American athletes you know, don't really focus on much. And in fact, that just to give a little support to Ken's point about the, the idea that sports psychology has not necessarily progressed um, very much with um, like weight training, if that's what you meant. I just yeah. typed in sports psychology weight lifting on uh, PubMed, National Library of Medicine, and there's 254 papers. And immediately, it, a lot of this stuff about the psychology of weightlifting is about muscle dysmorphia, pumping up masculinity, all pumped up, bodybuilding forums, you know, weight misperceptions physique misperceptions instead of the kind of stuff that you're talking about which is well, why don't we work at, work on concentrating uh, you know on the positive uses of these kinds of things this all just right. looks like it makes it all look like it's some big pro problem yeah. with uh, you know body image and eating disorders and well it, what, what it is is a cultural problem with psychology psychology from about 1910 in the West kicked out any sort of what it's called phenomenological or first person reporting saying that it was subjective and we want an objective psychology so it's measuring things and that's I think what they're trying to do and quite frankly when you enter into the the I hate this word meditation but I'm going to have to use it. it it sounds like it's a religious word and that's not what we're really doing we're training attention we're training no. non-dual mindfulness what's non-dual mindfulness mean most of us do introductory practices and we get distracted, distracted, distracted. We don't know how to live without right and wrong. We don't know how to live without polarities. And the point of non-dual is that you get beyond those polarities that are going to drag you down and are fully present in what you're doing. Yeah. No, you yeah, and the I mean, movement do not... And then there's another thing. These... Sports psychology, particularly in strength training, goes on and on and on about central nervous system adaptation. And what they're missing is the big revolution of the 70s and 80s in molecular biology, which is the Lingen receptor system. You guys know what that is? No. Well, we have receptor sites all over our cells, right? That's where testosterone docks. That's where all sorts of things dock. We have receptor sites in the cells of our brain that produce uh, neuropeptides. 
They're how the brain cells communicate with the rest of the cells of the body. So our brain is informing cells through our circulatory system all the time, everywhere. And so in a way, our brain is creating our biology. But at the same time, our biology is feeding back and altering our brain. So the ob- object of, of uh, what's called, in, in some cases, big word, psychoneuroimmunology is, is one field where people are going out and working on diseases like getting remission from diseases like cancer by altering the biochemistry through altering how we think, perceive, and understand ourselves. You know, Ken, I, I was just I was just talking to my wife today. I guess we nerd out a little bit, but about you know neuroendocrinology. You know, you don't have two separate systems. You know, you don't have your wiring, and then you don't have hormones. You have a close connection between these kinds of things. Where you know, if you feel stress, for example, you'll start to secrete cortisol. You know, this isn't just from overtraining, right? So, I mean, your wires are intimately connected with also a chemical process, and this whole neuroendocrine idea. And like you said, that's also tightly linked with you know with other systems like the immunological system. So, and like you said, it's both afferent and efferent. It's outgoing and it's incoming. That's exactly right. I'm just finishing Brad Schoenfield's new paper. Um Potential mechanisms for a role of metabolic stress and hypertrophic adaptations to resistance training. And I've, I've, I've not drilled down enough yet, but I suspect strongly that what he's talking about in terms of adaptations is another portion of the uh, Lingen receptor system. Testosterone, I think, can be regarded as a Lingen. That's something that docks on the receptor site of a cell, giving it information. Right, right. So hormones would be, right, would be the ligand, right? And the right. receptor is the three-dimensional puzzle piece that it fits with. That dances and, with it. Yeah, and, yeah, and, I, and, and I agree. And I think that the fascinating thing would be, right, I think a lot of people think about sports psychology as, you know, it's almost like a pre-workout meal. But what about other times? You know, would there be ways to, like, for example, I actually have some studies. I went and looked at mindfulness meditation. I'm sorry, Ken, I know you don't like the word meditation, but I went and looked at what science is there, and you will, in fact, find things like lower cortisol concentrations in the blood. Oh, you know, there's and an things abundant. like that. Mike Murphy, has, uh, the founder of Esalen, did a, a book in uh, the mid-'90s titled The Future of the Body, 800 pages, 3,000 references, to known bodily transformations in sports and fine and performing arts and hypnosis and so on. I mean, it's an amazing collection of data. He did another book um, on the psychology and physiology of meditation. And again, I think they had to prune that down from 40,000 hits to um, the best 3,000. And particularly regulation of cortisol is one of the easiest things in the world to do. I've seen studies that have claimed elevation of human growth hormone levels through visualization exercises. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm convinced that right now, let's look at the the, the life of the average guy that's working out or the average girl. We get up in the morning. We've got all the stuff we do. We get ready. We go to work. We, you know, we go through this life that's our genes are not hardwired for anything more than episodic stress. You know, a saber-toothed tiger is coming at you, you run or kill it. Yeah. Or there's a buffalo you've got to go get for dinner. We live in a world of ongoing chronic stress that has a tremendously powerful erosive effect on our metabolism, on our well-being, and you take it to the gym. The I quite personally think that when we get in to start doing uh, psychological training, we need to be doing a set every few hours initially to begin to transition ourselves from living on a roller coaster ride, living in a, an emotional soap opera, to beginning to gain personal power, beginning to gain voluntary control over our physiology, yeah. over our lives. No, um, and when you're can... working out, you've got to carry that... To me, working out is moving meditation, just like it is to a martial artist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I can jump in here for a minute and kind yeah. of bring it back to the gym and the platform real quick, just two examples. You know, I fully believe, and I have for a long time, me as a coach, I'm as much strength coach as I am mental coach. Um, 
the reasoning behind why we do so much submaximal work in here isn't just because I believe it's it's the best way to get strong and and, and stay healthy. It's also you know building the mind and building confidence. And I've talked about it a lot on here. You know, I mean, there was a, a stretch where I didn't miss a deadlift for four years, and by that time, I I knew nothing but making the deadlift. You know, I'd walk up to board, didn't matter what was on it. All I knew is, okay, I just picked this thing up. Um, and that's huge, you know, and that's a big part of my job is making my clients confident in what they're doing um, and, and getting their own head on their side and then bringing it back personally to myself and, and you know, meets and Jim. I know um, building it up over the years when there's been several times in a meet where people are like, you just stepped past your physical ability. You know, you picked up something that you are not physical. You should not be physically able to pick up. And, you know, I know that about myself, and I have to purposely ring myself in in the gym because I can get to a point where I will hurt myself. Um, <laughs> I will pick up things that I just, my tendons, my body cannot, should not handle. You know, Phil, right? you sound like and, a, a mom pulling a car off her baby, you know. It's true, though. Yeah. I mean, I, because, like, and I've, I've seen it twice in the last six months. My buddy Paul Carter comes down, and whenever he comes down, my mindset changes. And all of a sudden, yeah, we're having fun, but I take it to that next level. And for a month, I'm wrecked. I mean, I take it to that meat level, and I pick up, you know, I did a meat and hit 700 pretty easy. He came down, and I hit 735 for a triple. Wow. And, and I, it was like, oh, and I was done for a month. And it was just because I stepped out of that zone where I have to control myself in the gym in my training because I know if I go there too much... It'll actually hurt my training. Bill, if I can, if I can offer this, this is a, let me, let me read you a, a brief quote from something I offer in strength and conditioning class. This sort of goes with what you're saying about, you know, you can ramp up your nervous system to such an extent, like you called it Olympic flu before, you know, after a meet, you crash yeah. sort of. Yes. Andy Fry, uh, is an overtraining researcher. And this goes back to what Ken was saying also about a, um, you know, a situation where we've got too much epinephrine all the time. You know, too much stress all the time. Um, he induced overtraining by having um, <laughs> college guys. I don't know if I've mentioned this before online on on the air, but by having college guys, he overtrained them into a point of sympathetic overtraining uh, by having them do ten one rep maxes daily for two weeks. Okay, so this is brutal. And yeah. what happened to these guys? Well, first they started losing their ability to respond to adrenaline. So Ken was talking about the ligand being the hormone, right? In this case, epinephrine or adrenaline. And then the receptor, obviously you have to have, you know, a, a, a receptive receptors. You have to have an, enough receptor density. And listen to this quote. Muscle adrenaline receptor density, beta 2 adrenaline receptors, significantly decreased by 37% in the group that Dr. Fry overtrained. So, wow. They're dumping Urinary epinephrine, even at night, believe it or not, they're even um, nocturnal urinary epinephrine, 49% increase. They're strung out in this case because yeah. he physically stressed them. But again, back to what Ken was saying, make no mistake, you can you know you can certainly elicit cortisol and epinephrine release just because of the neuroendocrine system because of your perceptions. Yeah. But their ability to respond is gone, and you know that's like what you're saying, Phil. I mean. You can't continue with that because even oh. if you keep dumping the hormone, even if your little adrenal glands sitting on top of your kidneys are going to keep squirting out epinephrine, yeah. your muscles, you know, in this case, 37% fewer. So you can't respond, you know. So it kind of, you know, all this kind of stuff just makes sense to me that, you know, like. Um, right. But, but my, my contention is it's good to know this. We need practical programs that integrate the two as one. So that we're not making mistakes, that we're not being swept away by, you know, whatever comes along. I mean, it's fun to do that sometimes. But if you're training to bring home gold every time you compete, then yeah. that, that's the priority. Yeah. And you can't afford to screw up uh, otherwise. But by doing both trainings and getting to recognize your little idiosyncrasies that sabotage you as part of that, you're stronger. Oh yeah, I measure strength in both modalities, psycho and physical. Ken, do you remember, or you, uh, Rob, Mike Menser used to talk about metabolic momentum, um, which I think was a, a sort of a, a subjective, in a way, concept. He was trying to explain that as you start rolling in your training, like toward a competition, 
um, your mood, your positivity, your focus, all this stuff almost creates an anabolic environment where you just start making progress. It starts to roll. And I think that's tied into what we're saying here on some level as well. I mean, he didn't have a formalized system perhaps to do that. Yeah, and he used a lot of cocaine and meth too. (laughs) You ever see Mike warm up with a bowl of crack? I've seen, I've seen some bad things. Yeah. And and I'm not saying that to deprecate his memory. What I am saying is the the very topic that he's uh, discussing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess what I'm just trying to say is if there's truth to to that, you know, then this could be a good thing. I don't use those kind of drugs in every half. Yeah. Um, I love espresso. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, yeah, I, I know what that momentum's like. Training sort of starts taking care of itself, and it gets better and better. It's really addictive. Yeah. But what oh, it does. Saying? It does. And I mean, I've had the same thing. You know, people use smelling salts to yeah. get themselves up, and I, I tried it, and it takes me over the edge. I'm at that point, anyways. And I've tried it, and all it does is it just pisses me off. It makes me so I can't see, and I'm too jacked up. Too much. <laughs> yeah, there's just too much there, and I, I can't I can't do it because, I don't know, I've learned to bring myself to that point where, you know, I'm, luckily my wife's one of the only people that knows. She'll just say, just shut up and stay away from me. Um, because I can't hear you. I don't want you in my face. Just stay away. I'm just going to sit over here and be quiet. And I'm, I got all I can see, all I can hear is that bar and me picking it up, you know. And, uh it's that's a tough thing to train and some people seem to get it easier and it yeah it would be awesome if we had a a systematic way to help us teach that um you know be- who had it <clears throat> the united states had <clears throat> back in the, excuse me back in the days when the aau dominated uh, olympic and uh, powerlifting mm-hmm. <clears throat> The AAU had an award, the Sullivan Award, that it awarded for outstanding athletic achievement. Only one lifter has ever received that. This man's focus was incredible. Every year he would come in light, set world records in the uh, the, um, middleweight class, go up to his natural body weight, set world records in the light heavyweight class, and then squeak over the limit into the middle heavyweight class and set more world records. Tommy Kono. Kono's focus was legendary. He could look at another athlete and destroy them. Yeah. Guess where he grew up? Sacramento, California, uh, Buddhist temple. Yeah. And I, I'm not advertising Buddhism so much. as He came with a discipline. He came with a gift most of us don't have in our culture. Yeah. And so what I put this together, I'm calling it, temporarily at least, Bodhi Building. Um, Bodhi is a Sanskrit word that means wisdom. So what I'm working on, in both for publication and website, and hopefully to go out and teach to groups that are interested, is an integrated method of working both ends, with applications for bodybuilding, applications for power sports, because they're very different. And I think I want to say there, just as you go through stages of development and periodization with strength training, the same thing lays true in the in the psychological domain, in the, kind of a transpersonal psychology of going through and beyond the self you are today to become that uh, self with mastery, more like a more like a samurai, uh, imperturbable. <clears throat> Yeah, I've always admired that sort of quality. Um, and you know what? I want to be fair about sports psychology. I mean, there is um, progress in the field. I mean, I'm looking at a paper right here, 2012 British Journal of Sports Medicine. It's it's almost along the lines of what we're discussing. Training history, deliberate practice, and elite sports performance. Right. Uh, it's a big review of the literature. You know, So uh, there is literature out there. I'm not particularly familiar with it, but that's one of the things I'd like to see more on the show is – uh, you know, more of an addressing of of the psychology behind, not just acutely, like when Phil talks about he's sitting there for a meet, leave me alone. I'm, you know, yeah. I can only see one thing, but even with across weeks of training, you know, uh, trying to get that hormon- hormonal response, sort of an anabolic environment. That I think Ken was sort of alluding to a little bit. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, I mean, even behind that, I mean, as far as 
you know, there's only one day a week that I cram down packages of Oreos and slam a monster. And it's because I know if I do that every day, I, I, it doesn't work. It starts to wear off, <laughs> you know. And it's, you know, it comes back to rich, even ritual is huge, like Rob was talking about. Yeah. Um, I think that's huge in the mind. You know, there's, I know, okay, it's go time. And I know, I also know, I mean, as far as ritual goes, there's only one time I put my singlet on. And stuff's about to get real serious if I put my singlet on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ritual is a tremendously important point. Everybody yeah. lives by ritual. A lot of us call them habits. But we live with a ritual, and there's kind of a mythic image associated with it, but we don't explore it. And if making the transition from ordinary to athlete has to involve some rites of passage. You're moving from one state to another. You don't know a lot about the other one, and the other one's where the gold is. It's going to build character. It's going to develop individuality. It's going to develop freedom. All right, fellas, we are just about out of time. Ken, any closing thoughts that you want to leave listeners with? Explore. (laughs) We don't know ourselves, by and large, and this is a way to gain self-mastery. That sounds good. Absolutely. I I can't argue with that 100%. All right, fellas. Um, Well... I think we're just about over on time. So thanks, Ken, again for coming on. I really do appreciate it. I'd love <laughs> to hear you. what you have to say. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as everybody knows, I'm kind of really focused on this mind stuff with, with training and all that type of stuff. So I, I love this stuff. So I yeah. really think we need more of it uh, on the program, either having Ken no, back. You know, um, there's a, one of our listeners is, is a actual psychologist, and he, he agreed to be on. <coughs> so I think we need to increase, uh, you know, this kind of content, especially yeah, because Ken really – Ken's really solidifying, you know, the mind-body connection, uh, this kind of holistic approach. This is a truth. It's sort of a human truth. It's we, we can't keep continue to artificially create silos. You know, this is your hormone system. This is your muscular no, system. This no, is your nervous it, system. It, it, it's artificial. We're, we're a whole system. That What I didn't mention is the exciting stuff that's being done with uh, M. Um, what a, I forget the type of scanning. It, it, what the researchers have done is taken subjects going into an eight-week training program in uh, mindfulness training and then an MRI scan going in and then one eight weeks out. And what they find is a repopulation of gray matter from heavy concentrations around the amygdala, the seat of the fight-or-flight response and emotional roller coaster rides, to movement to the left uh, prefrontal cortex Indicative of, of higher level decision making and other things being developed. And with that, a lighting up of that area of the uh, uh, left cortex just behind the uh, frontal portion called the insula. The insula is the seat of emotions such as empathy, compassion, kindness. Builds a different kind of people. Yeah. And it's all, in, uh, you know, inherent within us. It depends on how we develop. Okay, guys, um, <laughs> it's hard to stop you know, the discussion. Yeah, There's, yeah. Um, but um, we'll see everybody next week. Um, yeah. Tune in. Lonnie will be in, in, in here with me. That's well, thanks, right. guys. During last week's show. Thank you, Ken. Yeah, it's always a good time. It, yep. Definitely. We'll get you back on. There Thank you, you. Thanks a lot. Bye. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, 
Lowery, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein. You can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes. Everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications, and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here. I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however. Obviously, I've done it for that purpose. I did it because, like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.